This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A's. It is Thursday late afternoon, so hopefully there's enough time for everybody's questions. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Tony Escobar wanted to continue the conversation we've been having about the Zenith HealthView CRT that they found. And that was just a CRT that was most likely one that was hanging from the ceiling of a hospital room for people to be able to watch TV and stuff while they were in there. And they said that they connected their console through the DVD VHS device that connected to it, the matching one that went with it. And they were wondering if the input signal through that player got degraded to the TV through the RF hookup. Um, No, but yes. So in the context of what you're talking about, almost surely you're not going to see any difference whatsoever. Some basic tips for analog video are every single device that you add to the chain has the potential to degrade the signal even more. Same with the longer cable runs that you use. And if you were talking about something like a flawless RGB signal going to a scalar going to 8K, yeah, you you might start to notice a little bit of differences going every time you add something to the line. But when you're talking about RF video, it's going to be equally, my guess, you know, I've been wrong before, but 99% of the time, it would be pretty much equal quality as if you had connected it directly. And I worded it that way very specifically because I've shown videos before about how RF looks in the middle of a city like Manhattan versus RF in the burbs on the same exact setup with no wireless interference around you. So the best answer to that, to your specific setup, is running it through that combo player in RF or even composite should look about the same as running RF directly into the TV. So that's certainly something to consider. The only thing you might want to try is if you get a lot of interference on the screen, try composite direct and then try RF direct and see if there's a difference. But if you're not in the middle of a major city, then you probably wouldn't have to worry about that. Also that you mentioned the uh, combo player, the DVD VHS combo player, also has S-video and component video outputs for the DVD player side of things. That was super common. What was most likely the case, 99.9% the case, is that Zenith just bought something from a contract manufacturer, slapped their logo on it, and called it a health view. But it was essentially a consumer-grade model that was designed for exactly that. And unfortunately, a lot of those were very lazily built, where it was essentially just a DVD player and a separate VHS player in the same exact package. And sometimes they didn't even share composite video outputs. Other times they shared composite and RF outputs, but 
the S video and component was separated because there was no scaling chips or anything in them. So it's not a bad thing to have one of those. I just want to always make sure you know what it is that you have there. So yeah, that it makes sense that that would be the case because Zenith wouldn't want to start production on that from scratch and they would have just hooked everything up through the RF or composite jack anyway. Um, Next, are there such things as HD15 to composite cables to connect your analog DAC and MISTER? So that's the conversation we've been having quite a bit in these Q&As and live streams and everything else about converting RGB or I guess um, HDMI depending on your setup. But basically going from RGB to composite or S-video. If you want to go back and listen to any of those others, I went into great detail, but I'll just skip to the end for this one. Going from RGB to S-Video, and, and even VGA, as long as it's 15 kilohertz to S-Video, you can get some good devices that'll be fine. It's not going to be as good as native S-Video generated from whatever device that you have, but it'll be fine. RGB to composite video is a nightmare and will almost never work perfectly. The only time it would is if you have something like very specific cores from Mr. Please check out that live stream or even uh, things like the retro castle adapter with the variable capacitor on the back. So if you want more information on that, uh, maybe just skim through the other ones and other Q and A's and posts and stuff and see if you have your answer. And if not, feel free to ask and I'll gladly re-explain it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Next up, McNugget Fiend recently dusted off their PlayStation 3 and Move controllers that were sitting in a closet since basically 2010 when they got them as a gift. They charged them up just to play Just Dance with some friends, and they got to wondering, is there any danger here with the rechargeable batteries in controllers or even the Move controllers, specifically regarding potential fire hazard? They had an old phone that they had to recycle because the battery was inflating over the years. They were sitting uncharged for a little over a decade in the closet. And in the same box as their old Game Boy Advance SP that they still charge and play from time to time. Should they look at replacing these batteries or is there visual or virtually no risk of them catching fire when charging them or using them? So I have a few tips and this this shouldn't be like the end all be all answer to your question. These are some basic tips to keep in mind and you're going to have to do a little more research and it's also going to be situational. But if you're talking about things that came directly from the factory, not aftermarket batteries. You should kind of do some searching and you'll find that some of the PlayStation portable batteries, I can't remember if it was the Vita or the PSP or both, those would expand over time and those would actually crack the case. And I can't remember if I've heard cases of them exploding or anything like that, but that's kind of a known thing. So some basic internet searching should get you the answers to those. As far as PlayStation 3 controllers, I've never heard of that happening with those, maybe with aftermarket batteries, but you definitely want to look that up. If it's something like a rechargeable Eneloop, AA battery, whatever else, always take those out. Always, 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 because I've had batteries less than a year old that started to leak, which is weird. Name brand good batteries, and 
you know, I've also found stuff that's been in a box for 20 something years and opened it up and the batteries were totally fine and, you know, it wasn't leaking or anything like that. So it's kind of a good practice. If a battery is removable, just take it out. But for stuff like a PlayStation 3 controller where you'd have to disassemble the whole thing, I would do some searching around to double check. But if it's not a known issue, I don't, I certainly don't think it would be a fire hazard. And I don't know if the expanding or, or anything like that would be an issue, but that's something you're definitely going to have to take a look at on a case by case basis. Now, when you're talking about third party aftermarket batteries, anything goes. I used to work with a guy a million years ago who was on like local TV because he was like, he had his cell phone plugged into the charger and he was like just playing with his phone, laying in bed before he went to sleep. And he it was one of those like, God, do I respond to one more email? Nah, I'll do it tomorrow. And he puts the phone down, rolls over and the phone explodes. And, you know, not like pop, like caught fire, burned his end table, you know, like an explosion explosion. And if he had just said, oh, yeah, one more email that would have been in his hands when it exploded. I'm laughing, nervous laugh, not laughing at the person that used to work with for almost having their hands explode. But it turns out that the battery that was purchased was a cheap knockoff. Once again, why you never buy clones and the chip that was inside it that said stop charging when the battery is full malfunctioned and that's why it ended up exploding because it just kept charging and charging and charging so while that is a bit of an extreme scenario it's totally possible with with any battery but especially third-party knockoff style so i definitely think that this is just something you should everybody should research on a case-by-case basis just to be safe and you know there's some known issues there's some no info at all on some stuff because there hasn't been any issues but you know if it's something that really concerns you like let's just say hypothetically speaking you got an ultra rare version of the game boy advance sp you know take a take a, a screwdriver very carefully so you don't strip anything and you make it look all mint and take it apart and unplug the battery and there you go now you just never have anything to worry about again but something like a playstation 3 controller i've had mine for a long long time and i don't leave it plugged in but i, I just i've never taken it apart for the purpose of making sure that the battery was safe. And the last time I took it apart to clean it, everything looked fine. And I feel comfortable doing that. I, feel, I don't feel like that's going to be a hazard or anything. So you're going to have to, you know, like I opened with case by case basis, you're going to have to make your own personal decision. But generally speaking, just research the topic and the exact devices that you're talking about. And there should be good info out there. The PASC was looking for a low latency Bluetooth audio transmitter to use with their PVM setup and their Sony M3 Bluetooth headset. And this is something that I would like to know the, the answer to this question as well, because I imagine this could be a big help for people who have already invested in good quality Bluetooth headsets who just don't want to have to deal with latency. So is there a good, when I say good, is there a good for the money cheap option that you could pick up on Amazon or something like that, where maybe it's not the top audio quality ever, but surely it would be better than the mono speaker built into a PVM. And of course, I'm always interested in good mid-range stuff. Uh, an example I like to use is the Shipmodi DAC. Yes, that's really the name, uh, because that was under, I think that was about 200 bucks, and it performs way better than most digital to analog audio converters in that price range. And yes, I know that you could go to the same company shit and get a decent headphone amp, 
but then you'd also have to go out and get a different set of headphones. So you could very easily end up spending a lot more money to just start over and be wired. And I really want to know if there is a decent solution for people that just already have good Bluetooth headsets that they want to use. So does anybody out there have a recommendation? Does anybody out there have something that they would suggest? I have used stuff over the years, but it was really bottom of the barrel stuff that I wanted to rig up for when it was late at night and I wanted to watch TV without waking anybody up. So I you know, rigged all that together and I used some crappy earbuds and it wasn't about quality. It was just about being able to hear the TV without turning volume up you know, outside of my head. So does anybody have any good advice for this or any suggestions? I would definitely like to know the answer. Oliver Clare recently picked up a Sega Game Gear and Atari Lynx and was looking into options to consoleize both of them. They wanted to do it in a way that preserves the original shell and form factor, though, not turn it into like a console version. Both are very awesome options, in my own opinion, by the way. Um, so they ended up picking up the McWill kits for both because you can do that. You would have to, depending on how you wanted to wire it, you will have to cut the console, but you could still use them as handheld consoles just with a D-sub VGA style output coming out the one end of it. And you can wire controller adapters in as well. They, uh, Oliver wasn't finding anyone who offered this as a commercial modding service, though. So do I know of anybody who does modding on both of those? And I don't know for sure. I, I certainly know tons of people that could do it. They have the skills, but I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head which mod shops are able to provide that. The only thing I could suggest is... If you're going to do the controller mod for the Sega Game Gear, make sure that you use the one that will work with a Genesis controller, not just the modified Master System controller. And it's pretty much the same installation. You don't really have to do that much more, but it's a different board. So I would definitely look into that and see who's got it. Um, the last I checked into that was years ago, and there was a whole drama thing of somebody stealing somebody's design. So I don't I don't really remember uh, which is the, the right one to buy today. But as long as it says compatible with a Sega Genesis controller, meaning that you could use the start button on your Game Gear the same way you would just use the start button on your Game Gear, that should be fine. Now, for the Lynx, I don't think I've ever tried to do that. So I would love to ask all of you, does anybody have any suggestions for that? Could you provide, uh, I guess YouTube blocks almost all the links. So maybe you could just describe what it is and, you know, console five space dot space com space game gear controller, you know, something like that. So it won't get picked up in the filters, but I would love to know if something like that exists. And also Oliver was able to pick up a triad power supply to work with the game gear, but couldn't find any adapters to work with the links. And they were wondering if it was safe to use a generic cheap adapter, if they should get one of the original links power adapters or whatever else. So as all of you know and are probably sick of me saying, I have very serious trust issues with power. And that is from experience. That is not, you know, tinfoil hat. I've had a lot of things happen in my career, both in retro and in the other stuff, where bad power adapters just destroyed things, caused all of these problems. So I will never, ever use some cheap generic thing from Amazon or eBay or anything like that uh, when it comes to power supplies. Now, would it be better to get the original Lynx one 
or something like a triad, for me personally, just my opinion, I'd rather go through the trouble of finding the correct pigtail in order to use a triad. And I don't know if Castlemania Games has one listed. Maybe Firebrand X has one on his sheet. Maybe somebody traced that down. All you would really need to know is if it's center positive or center negative. The voltage uh, tolerance of the links. So you just find the original links power adapter and read the voltage off the side. And then the barrel size. The PASC chimed in and found that the barrel size is probably 3.5 millimeters by 1.35 millimeters with center positive. So if somebody else could confirm that, maybe somebody has an original Lynx power supply and we could all get together, get that info up on Firebrand X's site. Maybe Ryan from Castlemania could list a pigtail. Maybe we could jam all the stuff on the wiki too. Whatever we got to do to get the info out there. But that would be my personal opinion and how I think that that would be the best way to go about it. The only exception to that would be is if this is something that was uh, something you use and a collector's item. It's really good to just have all the original stuff for, you know, for all the collectory reasons and, you know, for other stuff that may or may not matter to most people. But if you're talking about your setup and how you just want to have all of your consoles connected reliably, I would just go with a triad and the correct pigtail adapter. And hopefully between everybody in the comments and us, we might be able to figure out exactly what that is and even get it listed for sale somewhere. One more from Oliver, they were looking for a magnetically shielded center channel speaker, and they were looking for the one that I bought, which was the exact one you linked to, Oliver, the CMT Charles Michael Thomas-340. And that's the one that you could say matches the two bookshelf speakers that I got. So it's a very similar, if not identical, sound to it. It is magnetically shielded. I did hold it up to the CRT and made sure to do all the tests and all that just to make sure. And I love the way it sounds. Once again, always a disclaimer with audio. I love it for the price. If you spend more money, you're going to get something that sounds better. But for the price, I, I love the Ascend Acoustics and I think they're absolutely top notch, especially if you're putting them near CRTs because they are shielded. Oliver also wanted to know regarding the shielding testing, they were wondering how I generated the color bar test pattern. That's the 240p test suite, the free software from Artemio. So as long as you have a ROM cart, any ROM cart for any console, you should be able to load that up and put it on your CRT and that's it. One quick tip with that though, um, color bars or white screen, you should do the test twice, once with each. And I also think that if you really want to be sure, especially if you have to use a non-shielded speaker sort of near your setup, set up a camera, even your cell phone, but set it to manual mode, hit record, and then walk over to your CRT and wave the speaker around it with both the white screen and then the color bars on. Because that's how I determined that my subwoofer wouldn't work in the corner over there. Because obviously when I picked it up and walked by, the all white screen went purple as I walked by. But when I put it on the ground, I'm like, mm, looks like an all white screen. So I set up my camera, put it into manual mode so the colors and the brightness didn't change. And I had it, so I took the first frame of the video and the last frame of the video, because even when I was walking by, you know, you see the shadow of me walking by, but you don't really, you know, you can't really tell. So when I compared the first frame to the last frame, there actually was a color difference. It just was very minimal, but that could cause damage slowly over time. So if you do have to end up with an unshielded subwoofer or something, I would definitely suggest doing that, which is a pain in the ass, but hey, for a couple minutes worth of work, isn't the peace of mind worth it? Um, and the last thing, 
do the speakers need to be powered on when they're when you're doing the interference test? No. Um, I was able to do that with and without. There was no difference whatsoever. And you could just kind of wave them in front and you get your answer, especially if it's an unshielded speaker. I mean, maybe there is a difference when they're on and turned up all the way, but if it's unshielded, you'll know immediately. You won't need to have to worry about that level of detail. Also, I've had some EMI apps on my phone that seem to work. I don't really understand how they work, but I have trust issues. So... I would always, you know, the app is fun, but I would always do the visual test for my own peace of mind. It's totally up to you, though. You could probably get one of those EMI apps and, you know, put it in front of an unshielded speaker, put it in front of a shielded speaker, and then you'd be able to see the difference. Next up, Seacon wants to know my thoughts on the different candy cab options from a CRT perspective. They have a new Astro City, but they've heard some people say that the older cabs, the Astro and Aero Cities, have a sharper Nanao MS-8 versus the Nanao MS-9 chassis. I'm probably pronouncing the now wrong, but hopefully you know what I'm talking about. Um, the later ones, Blast and New Net, could also have tri-sync monitors, but specifically the Blasts seem to have reliability issues. Also curious if I plan on modding my new Astro City or doing a tube replacement or anything like that. They're looking to get a second cab and they're leaning towards getting a tri-sync and probably a New Net City, but they'd appreciate my thoughts on it. So I have to, I know this is so cheesy, but I have to start with my strongest opinion by far. Any one of these with a good quality CRT in it is a win. Uh, the nightmare that I went through, which I would have never been able to do without my friends, especially Jose, thank you again for that. The nightmare I went through with that candy cab just proved that if you find something that's working and in good condition and doesn't have major issues, I still have to fix the yoke on that. And hopefully that's the problem. If not, I, who, who knows what else I would have to do to it? Because it's kind of unplayable because with the yoke off, everything's just blurry. So if you find something that you could see with your own eyes and you could sit in front of, and all right, maybe the buttons are messed up, fine. Buttons, anybody could swap themselves. But the important parts, the CRT, the chassis, the power supply, is everything working? Is there fold over? Is the yoke twisted so you get the RGB colors off-centered, getting that weird blur that I have? Is the image sharp or blurry? Is there burn-in? If you find one that you think looks great, you've won. Period. End of story. End of discussion. So that strong opinion aside, I'll tell you what I've heard and what I've seen. I have absolutely seen that the older 15 kilohertz only chassis can be a lot sharper, and I still cannot for the life of me understand why. I'm sure there's a technical explanation. I'm sure maybe if it was explained to me by the right person, I would get it, but it doesn't quite make sense to me. It could just be that the 15 kilohertz feature was an afterthought because they said, okay, here's a, a new cab and a new chassis to support Naomi, let's just say, pulling one out there. And oh yeah, by the way, let's throw 15 kilohertz support in if they want to use older motherboards, but this is really for the new stuff. That's very likely. And that might not be the answer. I could be dead wrong about that, but that in the world of electronics is extremely likely. So I would suggest really planning this out and understanding what you need. If you have something where you're like, yeah, I mostly want to play Naomi and uh, you know the, the all the other 31 kilohertz based stuff, then I would look into that and I would try to find a tri-sync or, or maybe even um, a dual sync monitor if you're looking for 24 kilohertz and really kind of go the distance with it. But if you are like me and it's like, oh, that would be an awesome free feature, but I'm really here for the 15 kilohertz stuff, 
I would get whatever worked. And mine's kind of Frankenstein-y because I have an Astro City with a new Astro City chassis that can be switched to 24 kilohertz or 24 hertz. It can have the 31 kilohertz mod done. And I believe Mike Moffat even has a mod that he tried to increase the sharpness on it. But at this point, I'm just trying to get it to work. I'll worry about all that stuff later and kind of figure it out as it goes. But if you're an arcade expert, please correct me if I got any of that stuff wrong. My my get one that you know works opinion will never change, but I'm talking about the sharpness, softness type of thing. So if there's anybody has any solid info on that, I'm always all ears for things like that. But, uh, you know, that's kind of, do you need all those extra modes? Is it really important to you? Is it important to you to have in that arcade machine or could you get a really badass VGA monitor and build it into a different arcade machine for your 31 kilohertz options? It's really going to be something that everybody has to kind of figure out for themselves. Now, your question of do I plan on modding anything or doing a tube replacement, the Astro City that I have, I, I want to just fix that. And I would love another one for aesthetics only. The Sammy cab I have is awesome. I, I think it's so cool. It's small enough to fit through my door without taking apart, which is really nice. But uh, it just, I, I, maybe it's my crazy OCD and I'm fine with that, but I just would love a new Astro City to go next to the Astro City, even if it doesn't have a 24 kilohertz chassis in there. They could both be 15. I just, I want the look of both of them. That said, the Sammy cab I might end up with forever, which is cool. Beast gave me a good deal on that, and Jose rebuilt almost all of it with me. He did most of the work, but I did pick up a fully rebuilt chassis for it and a 24-inch monitor out of a consumer-grade TV, and that was the one that I did the live stream on, where these came from a school. They'd been in a closet for years. They were barely news, that barely used. That's essentially a brand-new CRT I have sitting on my floor over there waiting for the install, and that is absolutely a candidate for this. So once time allows, which to be honest, it might be a couple of months, but I do want to take the smaller monitor out of the Sammy video world, put the 24 inch in it with the brand new chassis I got. I of course will take the smaller monitor and the old chassis, which still works great and make sure that goes into the hands of people who need it. I, I never throw stuff out like that. Um, then that will be getting a consumer grade CRT, which I guarantee you will look amazing because it's basically brand new. And it's the same exact tube that was used in a lot of these arcade machines. Because, you know, as you probably know, since you already asked the question, but if anybody else isn't aware, arcade machines very often didn't have special CRTs. They took the same tube from the same factory of a TV you would have gotten at Circuit City or Nobody Beats the Wiz or whatever, and they just bolted that directly into the arcade machine, built up a different chassis for it or, or picked up something off the shelf, wired it up, tweaked it, and that's it. It just looked so much better because it was direct RGB right to the tube without any processing, uh, you know, not going down to composite or anything like that, which is why you could have, you could take a mediocre to meh consumer grade TV, put that tube in an arcade machine as long as it matches the chassis and everything and get something that looks pretty darn close to an RGB monitor, you know, like a, a higher grade PVM type of thing. So I will be doing that. I will be finishing that project. And then it's really just a matter of, can I get another, uh, a new era or a new Astro city to match? And, you know, maybe I could work with people to piece things together so I could take the chassis, the new Astro City chassis out of the Astro City, put it in a new, get an original chassis in that. It, you know, I would love to kind of restore them to make two 
original-ish ones that match, one vertically oriented, one horizontal. And that's really only for aesthetics because the Sammy cab absolutely kicks ass. It's in great condition. I would just, you know, I think there's a lot of collectors out there that, believe it or not, I think there's a lot of people that might have a bunch of Astro Cities and have never had a Sammy cab and just would think, oh, that's awesome. Let's, you know, let's swap out some trade, pay the difference for who's got the more expensive thingy. And that's kind of what I'm hoping on. I figure I'll just be patient and wait to see if anybody wants to trade me so that I could have two that match. But if I end up keeping the Sammy with that new 24 inch monitor in it, I say new, new enough. Um, I, I think I'm going to be incredibly happy. I don't know which ones would be compatible, which consumer CRTs would be compatible with any of the Astro Cities, but that's definitely something you would want to look into. I've heard certain models of certain TVs have the right tubes in it, but I don't want to repeat it here because I don't want to have people chasing down these things just to find out that I was wrong. But I'm, I, I will say that I'm pretty sure there are specific revision consumer TVs that have the exact same tubes, and some might even be 24 hertz compatible, obviously, if you use the chassis that was in it. So... Hopefully I didn't ramble too much and kind of added the right perspective to this. And uh, hey, if uh, anybody wants to trade, let me know. Now over on Floatplane, a question from Lego Lars, who is a lurker from Sweden who's listened in all the time, but this is their first question. So uh, thank you for your support. Um, welcome. And uh, I'm a big fan of Sweden here. I've been to Barros and Gothenburg and I absolutely loved it. And I hope to go back someday. Hopefully someday I could actually see in flames playing in Sweden. Anyway, this week's question concerns RetroNAS. They're running a virtual machine on an old laptop that they've set up on their AV rack. They're using a simple USB 3.0 hard drive docking station as their storage solution. The docking station sits in a USB switch chain, which is very convenient as they could save some space over using separate external hard drives for different consoles. It also allows them to access these hard drives on their main PC if the formatting allows. The plan is to use the same docking station with RetroNAS to swap hard drives they have laying around for different consoles, such as PS2, PS3, and Mr. They're currently only running RetroNAS on a 2TB hard drive, which exclusively holds PS2 games. This leads to the problem they're having. They can't access the RetroNAS VMDK file to launch Debian without the PS2 hard drive. So I don't know if your setup is going to flow the nicest with RetroNAS. What you absolutely could do is load it onto a USB stick, grab the cheapest SSD to go inside that laptop. I'm talking $20 SSD from Amazon type of thing. You don't need speed, you don't need tons of space, but throw an SSD in and load RetroNAS on that. And then after RetroNAS is loaded, then you could connect your USB hard drive. But the question that I have is, will the file system layout work in this setup? Because RetroNAS creates its own file system or, or directory tree on that file system. It's a Linux-based. I think you could choose BTRFS or another one. Uh, that's the one I chose, though. But then it has all of the directories laid out, and then it uses symlinks to tell all of these devices that it's actually their file directory tree. So the best example is something like the ROM folder is under, you know, ROMs based on company and console, you know, so Nintendo SNES type of thing. But if you load up your mister and you're scrolling through the folders on your mister, it looks like RetroNAS has formatted it the same exact way that mister would, even though it's not. And that's through the auto-generated symlinks that they had programmed in. So 
that's why I'm not sure if you'll be able to do it for something like, you know, plug this into your PlayStation 2. Now I'm going to plug it into the RetroNAS instead. I think if you're streaming everything over the network, that USB solution would totally work. And I also think that if you're talking about, um, okay, I have two laptops, my RetroNAS laptop and my daily driver, power off RetroNAS, plug this into my Linux laptop, copy files over that way, then power it off, plug it back into RetroNAS. That should be fine. But if I were you, I would just simply do everything over the network. Um, I've used things like, uh, I did some some pretty crazy experiments when I first started out with re- working with RetroNAS. And then I just realized I don't have enough time to keep making video after video after video. So at some point I'll swing back around. But I took a beat, beat old laptop that barely had a working network port and I installed an SSD. It did have a USB 3 port. So I got one of those USB 3 hubs that is also a gigabit ethernet port. And I plugged in a hard drive to that, a self-powered hard drive, not powered off the laptop, plugged in my ethernet cable to it. It worked totally fine. And that was from parts that were basically free. I I had that hub laying around, but you can get one for super cheap. So, and in fact, that laptop had a dead screen. I think I ended up um, giving all this stuff away to somebody just to part out, uh, somebody who just needed extra cash and at the time to be able to list this stuff individually on eBay. But if I needed that as a setup, I could have just removed the screen, done setup, the basic setup on, you know, plug it into a monitor, but you could run RetroNAS headless after that. And that was it. I would have just put it on in your setup. I would put it on your rack. I would have the USB three network adapter slash hub hanging off the side. And I would connect it all that way and just do everything over gigabit ethernet. While it's not going to be as fast as direct connected to a PC, I don't have any complaints at all. So please excuse me if I didn't understand anything about the setup. Um, you know, I get things wrong all the time in these. As If you've been listening, you already know that. So uh, if I misunderstood your setup at all, please re-ask and we'll go back over it next week. But while I think that's kind of a, a neat idea, um, I, I think that you should just keep everything running through the retro NAS and not connect it through anything else unless you absolutely need to. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question that you would like wherever it is that you support, but please put them in the newest Q&A post because the way the services work, I can't really tell what's a new question on an old post. Plus, as you see here today, I like just scrolling through in real time and answering it like we were hanging out with each other somewhere. So as always, thank you to everybody who supports and who's keeping all of this stuff going. I truly appreciate it. And I'll see you next week.